an anti-hero has some of the qualities of a hero. He wants to save the world and he wants to do good. Yet a anti-hero is flawed. A anti-hero is challenged. So we can go back to a James Bond example, which we can all understand and relate to, whereby James Bond is a hero in that way that he wants to save the world, yet he's an anti-hero because he also has a, a problem with alcohol and candidly he also has uh, questionable behavior with women and in this campaign dove shows a reverse selfie meaning starting from a selfie that has been posted on social media walking back to what this person really looks like in terms of her skin complexion in terms of the imperfections of her skin in terms of the light and the makeup and all that and by doing so we reveals the real beauty of this individual. Starbucks has repurposed the coffee drink as a way to connect in person with the barista and to provide consumers with a third place. That's neither the home nor the office. What so, is your favorite childhood memory? Oh, it has to do with cooking ah. and flavors from uh, roasted chicken from my grandmother. Hello, fellows. Welcome to the next episode of Jagged with Jasravi. Subscribe to my channel for conversations at the edge with thought leaders from the branding, marketing, and the business world. Conversations that ignite new ideas, ideas that have rough and sharp edges. Hello, Emmanuel. So nice to have you on my show. Jasravi, thank you so much for having me. And I'm doing my very best to say your name properly. And I'm really looking forward to connecting with you and your community today. So the book Assemblage and Brands, what is the connection? If you could explain the concept uh, and why you picked it, what are its elements? We'll go to James Bond later, although I wanted to start there. <laughs> <laughs> but let's let's flow like this or or you can you can do it simultaneously yeah mm, sure thing well to help our audience understand so the name of the book is assemblage or assemblage the art and science of brand transformation what an assemblage is is a term that inspired that is inspired from winemaking that is when you make wine or when you make a whiskey or cognac or champagne or bourbon, you do so by blending different samples from different uh, barrels and different aging processes and maybe different types of grapes and different pieces of land and different methods and methodologies to, to get to that combination. The assemblage is this work of picking and choosing the different samples you want to blend so that you deliver a product that is unique and different and um, premium, if you will. And this term is a metaphor that I adapted to the world of building brands. The point is to say to real brands that 
are successful, what we need to do as brand strategists, as marketers, we need to pick and choose from the most relevant personal, social, cultural attributes so that we build brands that resonate with our audiences and importantly, so that we build brands that will do well in the long run. And again, that's the analogy with winemaking. When you make some wine or brandy cognac whiskey, your goal is not to make a product for next week. It is to make a product that's going to age very well and that is going to develop over time in terms of its qualities. And as the same thing I prompt us to do in branding, and this book shows you how to do that. Mm. Very interesting, uh, Emmanuel, because, you know, typically brand strategy books would have art of war or you know, mm. category, market share, competition. And this is a very, very cultural, uh, if I could say, consumer centric way of looking at building of brands. Uh, and which and and by the end of it, I think our audiences will really appreciate that the times that we are in, this is a very, very apt lens to look at brands and even how to construct them. So when we look at James Bond, James Bond has always been uh, so deeply connecting with consumers, right, as a brand. I remember, Emmanuel, there was a workshop we attended and uh, this whole exercise, what is the core of the brand uh, we had to figure out and then pen down how it has evolved over the times. And we used to, you know, try and get every word right uh, for James Bond series. Like, okay, the British has to come, the flawed has to come, and he's fighting forces. But, you know, what can evolve, what can change over the times? And I mean, that's the beauty. So James Bond, assemblage, and what are the elements of assemblage are getting covered here? For example, you have mm -hmm. mentioned brand collabs. Uh, you've talked about uh, the ecosystem. You've talked about... So if you could uh, explain the elements of assemblage with the example of James Bond. Yeah, James Bond is, as you said, a global brand and is an excellent example of assemblage and here's why. You have some elements of this brand that are foundational, that have always been here and will always be here, meaning James Bond is a British spy and James Bond is here to fight evil and he does so with the help of various gadgets and is adventurous and is on a mission to save the world. And there is a British flair and, if you will, sophistication that comes with the character of James Bond. So that has been the case across the 38 or so movies and will always be the case. Yet, the James Bond brand has evolved over time in many ways. In the early movies, for example, the secretary of his boss was a very proper, what we like to call a very public school British woman. Today, it's a black woman. Or, for example, Q, whom provides James Bond with his gadgets, 
he again, Q used to be an older white guy with a sports coat and elbow patch. He's very, very British. Now Q is a much younger individual and he's openly gay. Uh, also, James Bond used to fight the KGB, right? And uh, specifically during the Cold War. And today, James Bond tends to fight a overlord, another arching power, and maybe digital, uh, internet-based evil. In fact, who knows, in future movies, maybe James Bond will be fighting artificial intelligence. So this is to say that, as with any good brands, the James Bond franchise kept what is foundational to the brand and evolved everything else so that the brand remains relevant and keeps not only driving people to movie theaters to see the movie, but keeps a certain uh, prestige, a certain cachet to the brand, so that when the James Bond franchise sells brand collaborations, they can do so at a premium, meaning when your Omega watches and you place your product in a James Bond movie, well, sure, you get eyeballs and you get and, and you get volume, but you know, you can do this with the Super Bowl or with other uh, events, maybe cricket in India, for example, and that's fine. When you place your product in a James Bond movie, besides achieving a global worldwide coverage, you also associate the product with a certain prestige that commands a premium for your brand. Right. So, uh, Emmanuel, I would like to know, uh, you know, for my audiences, so that they really appreciate the genesis of this uh, concept. How did you decide to use this as your lens? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, how, how did you decide that the assemblage is the way to get a great brand going for the times? Or actually, this is what great brands have been doing, the ones that have been successful. How did you come across this concept? Uh, precisely the way you described it, meaning I wanted to reflect on brands, which ones are the ones that are successful and why, and which ones are the ones that failed and why. And most of the time, the brands that fail is because they fail to adapt to a new generation of shoppers. They fail to adapt to new market conditions and all that. And I started from, I noticed two things that are very important. The first one is that brands have become very dynamic in nature. They're no longer static. Brands evolve, they live and breathe and we should never take their success nor their failure for that matter for granted. You have plenty of fantastic brands that were around 10 years ago that people barely remember today. The second thing that I noticed is the shifting power of influence. What I mean by this is five or seven years ago, marketing executives and brand strategists and advertisers could dictate to the audience what the brand stands for, today they have to co-construct 
the meaning of the brand with the audience because of social media and TikTok and what have you. People can talk back and they can promote, but they can also cancel the brand. And I think the third point I want to make, which frankly I think is the most important, the book is about brands can no longer just sell products. We don't need any more brands and we don't need any more products. What brands need to do, besides delivering great products that are priced well and reliable, brands need to transform people and the world they live in. Brands must make a positive impact on the individual consumer and on the community the consumer uh, lives in and on the world at large. And that has to do with economic recovery and sustainability and brand purpose and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So many threads here, and I would like to take each one of them, you know, into it's, it's another segue uh, all by itself. So um, the co-creation and letting go of control, that is one. And the other is very, very close to my heart also, because um, when you're talking about transforming our world, transforming us, and you have listed down three dimensions around which um, great brands work. So first, let's talk about the, you know, the co-creation that you were talking about, how important the narrative of the consumer, along with the brand's own narrative, has become like they walk together, the, the you know, uh, how is that not going right? Where do you think the marketers' misconceptions or discomfort is coming in the way? Well, too many marketers are bubbled. And what I mean by this is marketers know way more about their product than anyone else. They know way more about their brand, their category. They also read the same publications and uh, listen to uh, often the same podcasts and live in the same cities and all that, and often fail to connect with uh, the real world, forgive me for using this expression, but to connect with real people, real consumers. And they often don't have a pulse on culture and what I mean by co-creation is this exchange, this relationship with their audience to act with empathy. That is to understand not only what matters to the audience, but how can the brand add to people's lives. That is, I understand where you come from. And I'm going to provide you with a product that can add something to your lives. When brands fail to do, when brands do this, they can succeed and they can do very, very well. When brands fail to do this, uh, it becomes a disaster very, very quickly. I can take an example in India from Cadbury, uh, the candy maker. And that was in 2019 when they started the Unity Bar. And that was for Indian Independence Day. And they meant to celebrate the diversity through this Cadbury Unity Bar, the diversity of uh, India's different 
ethnic backgrounds and the bar was uh, dark chocolate, blended chocolate, milk chocolate, white chocolate, all into one bar. And in short, it just backfired because, as you know better than I do, the Indian community felt offended. That was disrespectful. And uh, that message did not resonate. So look, hey, let's not be too dramatic here. Brands can make mistakes. And in this context, Cadbury did recover, can recover most of the time. Brands can recover really well. And that's not to say that, uh, I mean, obviously, Cadbury is still around and a very successful brands in, in, in many regards. And when you push as many products as they do to market, well, it's only fair that sometimes you get it wrong. That's all to say, though, that it's so important to understand the individuals and their close community and the world they live in and then act with empathy demonstrate from the brand to the audience that they understand uh, what happens to people's lives, how do people think and feel about their lives, and again, make an intentional positive impact, positive contribution to people's lives. When you said marketers are not in touch with the real world of the consumers is actually so true and 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 it's not even easy but it's so essential that to get into their shoes and to really get their world uh, uh and then talk to them so you you get what they really want you get the language right you get their context right um Emmanuel, my grounding has also been uh, market research. I started with qualitative market research in AC Nielsen, and then I moved to branding. Mm. So totally, totally <laughs> bought into this. Um, and somewhere you also mentioned uh, small data and its importance, um, mm. you know, because the empathy, you, you don't, don't really experience the consumer's world till you put on that lens, a holistic understanding uh, you know when we and when we talk about the world then it's all aspects of that individual of that person you have to get so mm. if you had to recommend a few things that marketers could start doing so the intention first of all the intention you're saying has to be there that i am going to make a positive impact in the consumer's life in their world and i'm going to empower them but for that you've got to understand uh so what would you recommend that they do? Well, intentions is, is very important. And to clarify for our listeners today, we should differentiate, we should contrast intentions and expectations. So here's what I mean. We often talk, marketers, we often talk about meeting client expectations, exceeding client expectations, managing client expectations. Well, look, all this is fine, important. The limitation, though, is when you do this, you're passive, meaning you receive. Meeting expectations is like, do me. It's going to hit me. It has to be positive or negative. Shaping expectations, in contrast, what uh, acting 
with intentions, being intentional, mm. that is an opportunity to proactively get ahead of what people are going to expect and help them understand, help them decide what they should expect from the product. That's being at the forefront of shaping this perception that the consumer is going to have of the brand. That's a much stronger position to be in. That is a much more proactive position to be in because when brands do this, when brands shape expectations for the category, by doing so, they have an opportunity to set the tone and importantly, to position their brand so that only their brand can meet those expectations that the brand created. So, you know, an example would be Tesla in the electric car market, whereby Tesla was the first one to simplify it. Tesla was the first one to produce and market electric cars at scale. And as such, Tesla got the chance to shape expectations for what drivers should expect from an electric car in terms of low maintenance, in terms of battery life, in terms of even price point, in terms of having a sunroof, and so on and so forth. Now, many other car manufacturers are entering the electric car markets. Granted, that means a lot more competition from Tesla and it's going to be a tougher environment. That said, Tesla had the opportunity to set the tone and as such is going to be able to deliver on expectations that only Tesla can deliver on simply because Tesla is the one that set the tone in the first place. And in that, is the transformation of the world also happening and the transformation for the per individual yep. also happening? So right. Tesla is also environment friendly. So sustainability and environmental impact, if we take that dimension, Emmanuel, and talk about some brands, how they are actually changing what the consumer should expect from a marketer. I mean, it's impacting brand preference, isn't it? Absolutely. Now, you um, well, you said two or three things that I feel are important. <laughs> so in terms of sustainability, that's what I cover in the third part of the book that has to do how can brands make a positive impact on the world around us. And the short answer is brands must help reduce waste and reduce energy consumption and make the world a more sustainable place. Yes, to your point, sustainability and ESG initiatives are becoming particularly important and they influence brand choice and especially for younger generations. With that said, there are two important caveats here that we see. The first one is, yes, people will pay a premium, but that premium has to be reasonable, if you will. Uh, 
put it this way, will people pay 5% more? Absolutely. Will they be willing to pay double because the product is more sustainable? Certainly not. Next, the second conflict we see at Ipsos in our studies is what we call the say-do gap. And the say-do gap has to do with young people telling you how uh, important sustainability is, yet they also buy a lot of leather goods and they love to fly around the world to travel. So sure, they will uh, recycle packaging or they will wear clothes longer and they will thrift instead of buying brand new clothes. In that regard, they care about sustainability and they care about how brands demonstrate sustainability. Yet, this younger generation is also conflicted about the way it acts towards sustainability. That That's a very important distinction you made. Emmanuel, but this whole thing about uh, marketers, uh, businesses, corporations needing to make products that last longer and have a positive mm -hmm. impact on the environment. Uh, you know, Patagonia coming up with uh, don't buy this jacket and actually taking it mm -hmm. to scale, not just as a gesture or a gimmick, but, you know, making it, um, uh, facilitating it to change uh, behavior. Because something like this is making us look at the brand differently. I mean, it's it's a changing a change in expectation. It's a change uh, in the personality that I perceive of the brand. If the brand initiates something like this, yeah. So Patagonia, while being an interesting example, uh, you mentioned the "Don't Buy This Jacket" campaign, whereby Patagonia wanted to encourage people mm -hmm. to keep their garments longer. One limitation, if you will, in, in my opinion, is, don't get me wrong, it's a great brand, leading brand in terms of sustainability initiatives, yet it's rather anecdotal. And what I mean by this is, for example, the founder's decision to give the brand away to uh, various charities or, or uh, organizations that focus on the environment. And realistically, uh, very few, if any, brands will follow suit, will do that. With that said, what is so important and what is catching up, catching on, I'm sorry, is exactly what you said of the opportunity to recycle and upcycle products. And here we see many brands like Lululemon in athletic wear, yoga pants, for example. We see this with Levi's, we see this with, uh, we are starting to see this with IKEA, whereby you can bring back your furniture to give them a second life. So those opportunities to upcycle products are, in my opinion, leading initiatives that many, many more brands need to implement. This is because everyone wins. <clears throat> so if you buy some yoga pants and they're quite expensive and you're going to wear them for a year or two and you took good care of those yoga pants, and now you want to change for different style, different gear, and you're going to bring those yoga pants back to the store in return for store credit. By doing so, as a consumer, you get a discount on your next purchase. And for the store, that also makes sense because 
the brand is going to sell those yoga pants to cheaper, obviously, than if they were brand new. And by doing so, it's going to attract consumers to its brand, to its store that would not have otherwise shot the brand because they possibly couldn't afford it. And then this consumer being those um, gently worn yoga pants also wins in this um, dynamic. And that's because this consumer is going to give a second life to the product, is going to create a new story with this product, something that is very personal and unique. And of course, success a product at a cheaper price. Oh, and by the way, it's going to build a basket because while in store, this consumer is going to buy some of our items. And finally, well, the environment wins because making clothing items, making garments is a very wasteful process. It can even be sadly a very dangerous process uh, with, I, I, I hate to say this, but with underage labor and practices that are uh, very unethical. And by upcycling garments and items, as I described it, we have an opportunity, we marketers have an opportunity to help change that dynamic. And I feel that possibly for the first time ever, we in the marketing industry and as brand strategists have an opportunity to make a positive impact on the world and uh, maybe not to save the world, that would be very pretentious, but if anything, to make a positive impact on the world around us. Yeah, the, the, the beauty of the fact, uh, the, the, uh, this whole practice is that they are making it cool. Yeah. You know? Because everybody knows, I mean, after COVID, this uh, awareness and consciousness is very high that, you know, we've, we've been doing it all wrong. We've, we've really been very self-centered. We've got to care for the world. We've got to, you know, take care of, uh, you know, material. We have to use mm -hmm. it properly you know it's all scarce it's all anything can happen you know i mean there's been a lot of forced reflection if we can say and when these brands uh take up these practices it's cool uh because there's right. a whole lot of the self-concept and self-signaling that you know becomes important there's another very beautiful thing uh that i'm myself very passionate about is uh Connecting deeply and resonating with consumers. I, I think I'm veering towards another book of yours, which is Brand Hacks, uh, Meaningful Brands. Uh, mm -hmm. But you, you've said that this can happen in 10 ways. Uh, authenticity, nostalgia, travel, adventure. And I was wondering, are you referring to archetypes? Uh, archetypal kind mm. of connections here. Yeah. Uh, first off, I'm... Um impressed with and uh, i'm impressed with how well you know my books and i really appreciate uh you uh reading my books as uh, uh diligently as uh, as you do and I'm, I'm excited to hear that sounds like it provides you with value and with new ideas here and yes the answer is archetypes are important and valuable and some archetypes are neglected and we could do more as marketers with those archetypes. Let me illustrate. In advertising, 
we very often rely on the archetype of the hero. And that's fine, but a hero is not necessarily very relatable and simply because most of us cannot jump from one building to another just like Batman and Superman do, right? However, (laughs) (laughs) hopefully you will not. (laughs) (laughs) And in contrast, anti-heroes, villains, saviors, these are examples of archetypes that I cover in chapter one that we can leverage in marketing and are more relatable. And let me illustrate. An anti-hero has some of the qualities of a hero. He wants to save the world and he wants to do good. Yet an anti-hero is flawed. An anti-hero is challenged. So we can go back to a James Bond example, which we can all understand and relate to, whereby James Bond is a hero in that way that he wants to save the world, yet he's an anti-hero because he also has a a problem with alcohol and candidly, he also has uh, questionable behavior with women and he's an orphan and he's widowed. And in that regard, we know that James Bond's hurting. We know that sometimes he's doing things that are very wrong but we side with him because he strives to improve. And as such, the anti-hero in advertising and in marketing is very powerful. And similar things, and I detail all this in the book, similar things can be said about villains and saviors. Villains are sympathetic. When you watch a movie, when you read a book, very often you will end up liking the villain. And there are ways for us marketers to leverage those archetypes that are underserved, that are underused in marketing, to bring a different tone to marketing, a different tone to our advertising campaigns, to be a little bit more unique and ultimately more noticeable. Yeah, uh, Emmanuel, and they are so real too, you know, so... The fact that they are flawed, they are real, and hence, like you said, they're relatable, and they they're 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 sort of in the process of embracing their shadow, you know, mm-hmm. which is very very interesting. Uh, you know, I mean, Batman, if if we say the fact that he's constantly struggling with his shadows, his guilt and his uh, sh- uh, sense of shame, etc. I mean, it's so relatable, uh, and. You also mentioned, Emmanuel, about the need to reassure that brands. And, and I'd, I'd request you to take some examples, uh, if you feel, apart from James Bond, any mm-hmm. marketing brands that have used the anti-hero. Um, an example is uh, Dove. Dove is a Unilever brand in the personal care category. And Dove has, since 2015, or I think 2017, embarked on the real beauty project. Mm-hmm. And in short, what Dove intends to do is to reveal people's real beauty, the authenticity of this beauty. And a recent example of a campaign is what Dove called the reversed selfie project. In this advertising campaign, Dove shows how young ladies should not use too many Instagram filters, it 
creates distortions and discomfort. And sadly, uh, that's why many teenagers are depressed, if you will, chasing a form of perfection that does not exist in beauty and is not even desirable, in my opinion. In this campaign, Dove shows a reverse selfie, meaning starting from a selfie that has been posted on social media, walking back to what this person really looks like in terms of her skin complexion, in terms of the imperfections of her skin, in terms of the light and the makeup and all that. And by doing so, reveals the real beauty of this individual. So that, in a way, is an anti-hero move because now you, with the skin... Uh, you, young lady, uh, whom the skin is imperfect uh, and may have various pimples or, or what have you, become beautiful. And that's that's an anti-hero move, if you will, because we reveal this unexpected and authentic nature of beauty in sharp contrast with the models we see on TV, in movies, and in advertisements all the time that look way too perfect because their uh, physical features have been optimized to say the least, thanks to photography and post-production. Absolutely. So that's a great example. Uh, Emmanuel, when you're talking about brands need to reassure in the current uh, environment, and you beautifully uh, mentioned the context about how change, uncertainty, uh, and a whole lot of overwhelm of technology is making people need to feel reassured. Now, in this context, I also want to wanted to understand because a lot of times brands have created a want in consumers' mind because, of course, they can't... Um, tamper with needs, but they've created a want with making consumer feel envious, feel jealous, feel afraid, you know, a lot of negative emotions created a discomfort to create a want for their own product. And are we saying when we, uh, you know, after you've explained uh, the brand's need to reassure today's consumer, is it also about using more positive emotions uh, in their uh, communication? I believe there is a need and an opportunity for brands to reassure people. And here's why. We live in a world that is uh, rather unsettling. There has been a big pandemic. There are conflicts in Europe and in many other regions of the world. And there is some threats to the world's economy. And there is a sustainability crisis. And maybe an upcoming global recession. And also, we are scared of various technologies, both machine learning and large language models and artificial intelligence and all this. Look, it sounds compelling, and it is. The truth, though, is many people can't help wondering, am I going to lose my job to a, a robot? So because the future is unsettling and uncertain, brands have an opportunity to reassure people, to comfort them, to do so by bring them back to a time or bring them to an environment that feels comforting and reassuring. 
And that is why nostalgia, for example, is so powerful in advertising because nostalgia brings you back to a time that was simpler and a time that you're familiar with and feel safe in. And uh, nostalgia is really, uh, was doing well before the pandemic, but is really doing very, very well now. We see brands like Polaroid, for example, that make cameras that are clunky and big and expensive. And, uh, but those brands are going through a true revival mm -hmm. because of the nostalgic value of their product. It's an old product and yeah, it's clunky, it's not practical and the quality is not great and it's expensive, but that's not the point. The point is to go back to a time when you had to wait for the picture to reveal itself. The point is to share this picture when it comes out of a camera with your group of friends when you took the picture. And then the point is to keep those Polaroids, those pictures, and to display those Polaroids on a wall or maybe on a string in your house. Once again, the quality of the picture is terrible in comparison with a good digital camera, not to mention that you're going to shoot maybe, I don't know, 10, 12, 15 Polaroids. In contrast, you could shoot 250 pictures in a few minutes with your phone. Yet, Polaroid carries this emotional, nostalgic value that is reassuring to people. And uh, Emmanuel, I was reading somewhere that uh, the the it is so human to be nostalgic that every 50 years, every 50 years, the generations believe that earlier generations were perfect and gold. So only mm. if the good memories get retained, the unpleasant ones uh, erode themselves. And uh, yeah, we've all experienced in the COVID times the power of nostalgia, the simplicity uh, of uh, all those memories. So cut to future. We've been talking a lot about COVID. We can see the jury <laughs> is still out. We still don't know how it has impacted us. We are all in a rush to get back to the new normal if there is one. If, if we talk about the future, Emmanuel, and you've talked about um, remix economy you've talked about mm. gig economy creator economy and i want to finish here because it is i believe uh, another way of saying how assemblage is at work isn't it so could you right. explain this for our audiences mm. yeah what's important in this book to share with our community our audience today is this book is positive this book empowers you to do things. And uh, here's what I mean. The chapter you're alluding to about the remix economy looks at copy, transform, and combine. What this means is in the arts or in music, and of course in marketing for that matter, very few ideas are really brand new. Most ideas are a, a Gelstadt, a, 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 a blend of existing products or existing ideas that may be repurposed towards a new need. And that's what I mean when I say we copy and then we transform 
And then we combined in that view assemblage, assemblage, whatever you want to call it, different attributes to create a product and an experience that's distinctive. So just to take an example, think of Starbucks. Starbucks has not invented coffee. Starbucks has not invented the coffee machine. And in fact, Starbucks has not invented the concept of a coffee shop. That's a concept that their founder imported from Italy. He went to Italy and noticed that their people would like to uh, grab coffee. What Starbucks has invented is a third place that places neither the office nor your home. It's a third place where you're either going to engage with the barista in, uh, if you go to the store alone, or it's a place where you're going to meet friends or families, or maybe for a somewhat informal business meeting, or where you're going to meet an acquaintance, or where you're going to connect with your local community. But again, Starbucks not selling coffee. Nobody cares. We had plenty of coffee brands before Starbucks, and we really didn't need another coffee brand. What Starbucks has invented is Starbucks has repurposed the coffee drink as a way to connect in person with the barista and to provide consumers with a third place. That's neither the home nor the office. Most of those creations are, are not new per se. We transform an existing recipe. We evolve an existing recipe. By the way, I really admire Indian cooking. I find the, the work, this is another example of assemblage. Uh, I don't, I cook a lot, but uh, I'm not good at cooking Indian food because <laughs> I don't control the spices and uh, this process as well as uh, I'm sure you do. And the point being is, you evolve the curry, you evolve the blend of spices, you evolve how you're going to roast the spices, when you're going to introduce the ghee, when you're going to introduce the yogurt, and, and so on and so forth. And in all likelihood, you don't invent um, garam masala, as an example. You evolve the recipe and you bring a unique touch uh, maybe it's from your family, maybe it's from your experience, a little twist that is going to make it unique, personable, different, and that is going to uh, make it last the, the test of time. So Indian cooking is just another great example of assemblage, how you can copy, transform, and combine spices so that you deliver a recipe that is unique and different and stands out. Oh. <laughs> Fantastic. I'm ready. I'm ready. Mother's best advice. Uh, works always eventually pays off. Wow. Alternate profession could have been? A product designer. Mm, design. For products such as this one. I wish I could have created this. this uh, oh, lovely. Okay. What would you do on Mars for fun? Planet Mars. Uh, listen to new sounds and listen to silence. One thing no one knows about you. One thing no one knows about me 
is I have a depth perception problem, maybe also because I'm left-handed. I'm not very good at seeing in perspective. And that's why as much as I always admired product designers, I couldn't be one. If you were to ask me to do a pyramid, for example, it will take me easily 15 minutes. Thank you for sharing that. Okay. Mm -hmm. A book you'd like to gift to all your friends. It cannot be your own. It's a very small book and it's called, It is not how good you are. It is how good you want to be. Ah, lovely. Very inspiring. What's something new happening in your life right now? I'm starting writing another book, which I hope will come out late 2024, early 2025. Great. We'll meet again then. <laughs> what, you, is your... <laughs> what is your favorite childhood memory? Oh, it has to do with cooking. Ah. And flavors from uh, roasted chicken from my grandmother, for example. Oh, lovely. Says a lot. Okay. If you were to devote the rest of your life to philanthropy, what cause would you choose? Responsible commerce. Mm. Okay, Manuel, I'd request you to share your online address. How can uh, people reach out to you? Thank you. So the book is called Assemblage, the Art and Science of Brand Transformation, or Assemblage, the Art and Science of Brand Transformation. It is available on Amazon in three different formats. That is, people can read the book, the hardcover. Uh, you also may download the ebook, the electronic version. And last but not least, there is an audio version of the book. So you can also listen to the book. Uh, my name is Emmanuel Probst, and Emmanuel is spelled with two M's. And you can find me on LinkedIn simply by typing Emmanuel Probst and connect with me. And if you have any questions, feel free to shoot me a note. I will be happy to answer your questions. I appreciate you having me on the show again today. I look forward to also sharing this episode with my community. Encourage people to like, share, and subscribe to the show. Yay. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure uh, having you here. Please write more books. <laughs> Thank you so much. It means so much to me that you invited me on your show to connect with your community and how diligently and thoroughly you, you read my books. I really appreciate it.